Hey everybody, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pekulski. As always, we frame this podcast around living your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. You deserve it and you can do it. And today's podcast is diving into nutrition so we can start to get a greater handle on what actually goes into this stuff. There's so much that gets thrown around. It gets absolutely confusing and overwhelming at times. But what in reality, when you talk to the smartest people in the world, the people who actually understand nutrition at a deep level, it starts to become simplified. Everyone's saying the same basic foundational things. And today we bring on the head of nutrition from Precision Nutrition. Precision Nutrition is a great company that's providing education and certification for nutritionists around the world to start to understand these processes, start to demystify all the myths and really get into the nitty gritty. This is an amazing conversation with Brian St. Pierre. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. And I was actually pleasantly surprised with the amount of insight and perspective he was able to provide in our conversation. Today's podcast is brought to you by Real Mushrooms. I am a mushroom fanatic and they keep coming out with more and more amazing ingredients that get me really, really excited. They've now got a mushroom with D2, vitamin D2. Uh, the ones that we're consistently using now, especially in, with the current uh, climate, we'll call it, of the world, are things to support our immune system. So turkey tail, reishi, shiitake, maitake, um, all of these mushrooms have an incredible benefit to boosting the immune system. And they've got a product called the Five Defenders that has all of these mushrooms in it. I suggest we all be taking. I'm currently taking Lion's Made every single day. And when I feel like my training is excessive or hard, or I feel like I'm overly stimulated, sometimes I drink too many cups of coffee, um, I'll throw in some reishi mushroom and it really calmed down my nervous system. It's almost like an adaptogen to where if I'm down, it brings me up. If I'm up, it brings me down. It really helps me to sleep. And uh, it's massive for improving my heart rate variability. So personally, I'll be, be doing between three and five grams daily before bed. And I noticed that alone gives my HRV a significant bump. Recently, I've got another little hack that I'm going to share with you in coming episodes that's actually almost doubled my deep sleep. So look out for that on coming episodes. I'll tell you a little bit about my insight on the next Q&A that we're doing here on the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Head over to realmushrooms.com slash Ben, B-E-N. Use that code to get 30% off your first order, guys. That's unbelievable. And they're hooking us up for a very limited time. Don't expect this to last forever. And if you've already ordered from Real Mushrooms, they're generously still offering 20%. You can use the code MUSCLE to get 20% uh, off subsequent orders. And it's absolutely uh, worth it, right? 100% organic mushrooms. And, and they're giving you the real fruiting body of the mushroom. They're not giving you the mycelium, which arguably is not the most useful thing to be putting into your body. Again, we have to seem to have two camps on this. Um, but from my research, it's so, it shows that you got to get the real mushroom body. And a lot of these companies that they're actually on the order of most of the companies, especially in the US, are providing mostly mycelium. Again, we don't want to do that. It's mostly grains. It's mostly oats. And you're getting a bunch of extra calories, but not actually getting the medicinal benefits of the mushroom. So head over to realmushrooms.com slash Ben and enjoy this podcast with myself and Brian St. Pierre from Precision Nutrition. Listen all the way to the end because we've got some amazing info coming at you right at the end of the podcast. Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Picosi, sitting here with Brian St. Pierre, the head of nutrition for Precision Nutrition. Brian, thanks for joining me. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, Ben. Looking forward to it. 
as, as we were just speaking about, we have also had Krista Scott Dixon on the show and she's an incredible wealth of information. We actually went deep on some really cool stuff. Uh, and I'd love to then kind of jump off where she and I left off and, and go, you know, kind of chunk down a little bit. So where she and I had this, this more conceptual conversation around, hey, uh, you know, these are all of the things that go into transforming somebody's body and not just once. It's like long term behavior change and identity change and stress management, all these things. Uh, now I want to get into a bit of the nitty gritty uh, around nutrition because that's where your, uh, your forte exists. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Oh. Awesome, man. So my demographic is very much uh, performance oriented. A lot of uh, high level athletes, high level coaches, uh, and certainly a lot of people looking to build some muscle. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of directions we could go. But uh, I'm, one thing I asked Krista, and I'd love to, for you to answer this question as well, is, you know, one of the challenges I, I face with you know, other nutritionists out there or with, um, you know, just the nutrition community, if there is such a thing is the subjective nature of it all. And I asked her if she could start to identify what is, what are the objective criteria? What are the things that you actually know about nutrition? Like what are the most important things that we can objectify that we can like kind of use those as a strong foundational jumping off point. Uh, and then obviously there's so many things that could be, well, it depends, right? And that's, that's a very challenging place. And so I try not to be dogmatic about anything, um, but at the same time, I think there probably is still some foundational principles where you can go, hey, you know, this is this is how you can objectify some things. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely there are foundational principles that apply, like regardless of your food preferences or what sport you play or don't play. Right. There are just some fundamental bedrock elements that are true for human beings in general. And so, I mean, I think it, it applies. They're even more important um, or there we can get really specific to them for high level individuals looking to build muscle or play, you know, play high level sports. That's like, you know, bare minimum, like meeting your energy requirements, right? That's, it's, it's a fundamental law, right? Of human physiology is like, you have to eat enough energy to meet your energy output or your energy output will go down or you'll end up with, right? Like reds or what was, you know, formerly called like the female athlete triad. But now they're trying to also show how it applies to men and you end up with these energy deficiencies and all kinds of, endocrine issues or downstream effects from just simply not eating enough overall calories to meet your caloric output. So to me, that's like, let's know what that is before we just gloss over that. Cause I don't want to assume people know what the, the triad is. So the female athlete triad or, or it's now called like red or red S um, is relative energy deficiency in sport. So basically it ends up leading to, for women, it can lead to like hypothalamic amenorrhea where they lose their period. Um, because they're not actually getting in enough calories. It can lead to, you know, like bone issues. It can lead to a whole host of uh, hormonal and endocrinology impacts. And then for men, it can actually lead to problems too. It can lead to decreased testosterone, like dramatically so, which can then lead to like performance detriments. It can lead to uh, mental, emotional issues. So there's like a whole downstream uh, problem when really all it comes the, the main underlying root cause is people are not eating enough relative to how much they are training. So, you know, you can, it can end up leading to like overtraining syndrome, which is related, but they're, they're distinct, but also related um, because then you're, you're overtraining with, within above your capacity to recover and eating more will help you recover, but there's still even a limit to that. But you see this, the reason it was always called the female athlete triad is because it was much more prevalent or it was more commonly diagnosed in women because there were more obvious signs like losing your period, right? That's a 
distinct, huge thing when you're 20 years old and you're a healthy female and all of a sudden you're not menstruating. Um, and there's, you know, the bone impacts, there's other impacts too. So it was more obvious uh, in, in women. So it was historically always called the female athlete triad, but now they're, they've renamed it uh, to just relative energy deficiency in sport because it also impacts men and it's becoming uh, more widely recognized that that's the case. And there are less obvious effects, but effects nonetheless on mental, emotional health, on physical, physiological health. And then obviously that all impacts your performance. It impacts your everyday life, how you interact with your kids, how you interact with your partner, your coach, whomever. Um, so it's, that's why I think fundamentally that is still the most important thing. Like that is a bedrock principle, meeting your, your energy needs. And you can get into probably the next two things, particularly for athletes, would be getting in enough protein right? And getting in enough carbohydrates for your activity. There are maybe some exceptions to that second one, right? There are some ultra endurance athletes who do equally as well on a ketogenic diet. Um, research yeah, that currently Zach, support. We've had Zach Bitter on and he's just a beast and does mostly in keto. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely examples. What's yeah. interesting is, but they, they tend to be uh, can I, like individual examples, like on the whole, like on the research on the whole does not show that eating keto makes you makes humans on average better at those things, but it can make individuals on average better at those things, right? There are certainly some people who, for whatever reason, reasons we haven't fully identified or don't fully understand who do, who see improvements in their generally in like ultra endurance activities, eating that way. Um, at the highest level, you don't see you know, people competing in a 10,000 meter race eating keto, right? Or even like a, a marathon. It's usually when you're getting to really, really long distance when the intensity has to drop enough where fat can fuel at the same, same rate or possibly even better uh, for some people than carbohydrates. So in general, though, for most athletes, protein and carbs are what are going to fuel your your workouts, your muscles, your recovery. So getting enough protein, getting enough carbs. I mean, it's, there are these things you, everyone's heard, right? But they're, everyone's heard them because they're the underlying bedrock. Without doing that, without hitting your protein amounts, the greatest nutrient timing in the world doesn't mean anything, right? Without hitting your overall carbohydrate needs, I don't care if you're fueling during your race or not. I mean, that matters, but it matters less than eating enough overall. So it's having like a hierarchy, like these are the bedrock things, right? So those are like the three key. And then obviously hydration is another big one. Uh, there are some other things that we think very strongly are really important, like eating vegetables, getting enough fiber. Right? There's a whole host of data, um, but there are exceptions. There are probably more exceptions to those for different health purposes or uh, disease states than there are the others. But those are probably like the very slight next criteria down. Um, but those would all be other big ones as well. So speaking of this, this um, REDS scenario, so how common is it? And, um, you know, I, I know, I guess the, the, the gold standard for an athlete is to, uh, is to count calories. Like you got to make sure you're hitting all these macros. But is, is there a, a way you've come across or like how do you feel about self-regulated eating, right? Like uh, there's always this this dynamic balance of like, well, prior to just a couple of years ago, I'm going to guess, we probably wouldn't have had kind of ubiquitous access to counting calories, yet we still had high-level athletes. So I'm curious what your thoughts are there. Yeah, it's a, it's actually a really interesting question. Um, I think there's a couple of things there. Like I'm 
the way we often teach nutrition is like tracking your intake in some way, shape, or form, whether that be calories, using an app to count macros, track your macros. We teach, you know, hand portions for different food groups. You can track hand portions. Those are like training wheels to help you like get better at eating well consistently. Right. And over time, for most people, we would like to see you transition towards more self-regulation. One, because then it tends to be more enjoyable or you're having to think less about all this fancy math. And plus, oftentimes you've integrated some of that. It's just like baked in. Oh, I know I'm getting, I look at my plate and I already just have a sense of like, yeah, I got plenty of protein, some carbs, some fats, some veggies, what have you. There's less need to like, you know, be super specific or, or track things. Then you can kind of self-regulate your eating um, with how humans always have. They eat until they're satisfied and they stop and then they eat again when they're hungry. Now, for really high-level athletes, that becomes less, um, less effective because oftentimes they're training so much, their output is so high, it dysregulates their ability to, to do that well, right? Like their appetite might drop because they train so hard, even though they need a lot of calories. So it doesn't always work in all scenarios. I mean, for the vast majority of people, even if you go to the gym five days a week and you're training, you know, an hour or two each time, you're not hitting an output that's going to drastically affect your appetite, like say like an Ironman triathlete, right? Who's training 25, 30 plus hours per week. Their output is dramatically higher. And that's where you really see things get dysregulated. So in general, I, uh, to go back to it depends, um, but I can tell you what it depends on, right? Like, so for most people who have like, quote unquote, like ordin relatively ordinary goals, um, even if it's to get like really jacked or really strong, you can work, use those kind of approaches to help you uh, regulate your eating externally, have these external guidelines, and then over time work to like slowly rely on them less and less and rely on how does it make me feel? How am I performing? And you can self-regulate that way, uh, which then ends up leading to just a better mental state about food and not having to always equate food with numbers and math and it being like a judgment on yourself. Um, but if you have like insanely high sporting demands, like really, really high level outputs, or if you want to step on stage in your underwear, right, you have very, very, very specific aesthetic goals, right, you, you have to track because every little bit matters at that point, right? A 3% boost could be the difference between first place and 12th place. Mm -hmm. Whereas like a 3% boost for me, and you know, at this point in my life, training in my home gym in my basement, I might not even notice, or like I'll feel really cool about it for two months. And then, you know, my dog throws up, and my kid has to go to the bathroom while I'm working out. And like there's other things going on. So it also depends on your goals, your level of commitment or desire to, to do thing at, do something at that level. And it's not required for most people's goals. So ultimately, I think my answer is we want most people to develop the skill of self-regulation eventually. Even high-level athletes are not going to compete at the elite level for their entire life. Um, and they often have other life demands. So self-regulation is a very important and beneficial lifelong skill. But if you're, you have very, very specific performance or aesthetic goals, tracking is will help you do it even more effectively, at least for that period of time, so long as it doesn't uh, disrupt your mental health or your emotional health or your relational health for that matter. Yeah, it's great that you said the, um, it's, hard, it's hard to kind of self-regulate at some point. So there's certain points throughout my career where 
you know, on training days, I didn't want to eat. Like uh-huh. off, off days, I'd want to smash everything in sight. Training days, I had to force feed myself. And everyone's like, that's just odd. And I'm like, I don't know why, man. Like, that's just, I, I could go the entire day without eating it if I trained really hard. And then on days when I didn't train, I was just ravenous. And it doesn't really make a lot of sense. You know, maybe you can, you can kind of deduce physiological reasons as to why. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most people tend to be the opposite. So any... Uh, reasoning there why that would happen like physiologically why some people would be ravenous on, on training days and other people not i mean you know the endocrinology is certainly not my my area of expertise but you can certainly see when that happens right when cortisol output goes super high from you training so hard like ghrelin levels drop significantly um there's probably a whole there's probably a whole cascade of hormonal things happening right like your your hypothalamus is is perceiving something a certain way based on, you know, you trained so hard and, and so intensely for such a period of time during that day that the the endocrine output from that, like the hormonal output from that is sending signals to your brain, which is like your appetite center, right? Your hypothalamus kind of regulates your desire to eat or, or to stop eating for whatever reason. I'm not sure what those are. Um, it's sending signals to your hypothalamus to Hey, we're not hungry. Right there, it's decreasing what I would call like your eating drive. Right? We have a sleep drive. You have a drive to eat. So there's something. I'm not sure what that is. I would suspect something like leptin's involved, but leptin tends to be more of a longer term. Um, it definitely f- functions or affects on shorter ter- term hormones or uh, receptors in your brain. Like you have different receptors in your hypothalamus that are sensing whether you're fed or not well fed. So they're being disrupted by such an intense level of output, right? Your body doesn't know Ben's trying to get super jacked, right? It's like, man, we almost just like died working out so hard. We need to just rest, right? So it's not even considering refueling because it doesn't know you want to work out that hard again the next day. So I would suspect without, this is me kind of spitballing a little bit based on what I know about physiology. Um, But I would suspect it'd be something to that effect. And the next day it's like, oh man, okay, we've we've rested, we survived. We need to recover and refuel from that. We we output so much. That's why your appetite cranked up so much the next day. So it's interesting. But if you just tried to rely on that, you would probably be less successful maximizing like your body composition change or adding muscle mass, right? Because you got to hit certain protein numbers pretty consistently. You certainly can't go from like no protein one day to adequate the next day. None that, you know, if you were constantly going back and forth, you would not progress as rapidly as if you hit those numbers on a much more consistent basis. So yeah, that's a prime example where just list quote unquote, listening to your body wouldn't have worked for your particular aesthetic goal. Right. So the way I want to kind of frame this is I want to start high level and start with some very generic stuff and then really chunk down super deep. And so you, you talked a little bit about protein and carbs, and I, I wouldn't mind going a little bit deeper on those, but you, you didn't mention fats. And I think fats have taken a huge role in, in, in culture and, and fitness society now. And I'm curious as to uh, what your perspective is there as far as um, and exclusive to performance. I'm not talking, um, you know, ketogenic dieting. We don't have to talk about that. But I'm very curious about uh, what role you believe fats play or you know fats to play in um, people looking to ulti- optimize recovery, optimize performance, ultimately brain health, all these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I probably should have included it uh, because there is certainly a, a minimum amount of fat to help you not only survive, but to thrive, right? To help with your immune function, to help with your hormonal status, which is all going to help you like recover better and then perform better. So... No, that was clearly just a, a miss on my part. Um, but fat is certainly 
you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's as important as the other two when it comes to maximizing sporting performance or even uh, like lifting performance, for example. But it's, it was probably too overlooked for too long. And then the pendulum has swung really far where people are like, yeah, man, you should just be crushing fat, right? Everyone, everyone should eat a, you know, a lower carb, higher fat diet, regardless of their performance or aesthetic goal. And, and I wouldn't say that's true either. And you often see that seemingly particularly in our field uh, where the pendulum swings from one end of the spectrum to the other. And the truth usually lies somewhere in the middle. So what we often teach, like we actually are in the midst of, of creating like in a whole a certificate on athlete nutrition coaching. So we've written two courses. We're going to be writing a third. And, you know, we're really helping to ensure people are hitting their protein and carb needs because research shows like that's what leads to the best performance outcomes for athletes. But there's still a minimum amount of fat that people need to consume, right, to help ensure, again, that their hormonal status is, is as appropriate as it can be. Their immune function is, is kept as high as possible. So we usually tell um, coaches to ensure that whatever they're recommending, their clients are getting at least 20% of their calories from fat. Now, it can be higher than that, um, but that's like your baseline minimum to help ensure they're getting enough fat for you know cellular health. Like your cells are made of phospholipid membranes. So having enough fat and the right types of fats help ensure that they're fluid enough to communicate well, but stiff enough to maintain their shape. Right. So there's a whole lot of other like deeper elements there. But yeah, fat is definitely critically important. Plus, plus from another perspective, it tastes good, right? You want to get clients to eat their food. You're not going to be feeding them just, you know, like plain boiled chicken breasts and brown rice. I mean, cool. We're going to have protein and carb needs done, right? You got to make the food palatable, make athletes want to enjoy eating it. It's one thing uh, we've worked on really hard when we've consulted with pro teams. Like you go in there and you want to make sure, okay, we're, we have a catering setup or they have an in-house chef. Yes, we're making sure they're getting nutrients, but they're being presented in a way that athletes will want to consume them. Because if it's super healthy food but doesn't taste good, players are going to look at it. Hell with this, right? They're going to bounce, stop at stop a Chick Fil A on their way home, and play video games. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. Um, so you know, you want to make sure, and fat really helps to achieve that. It makes things taste good. It adds mouthfeel. It adds flavor, right? So you add dressing, you add nuts, you add avocado, what have you. The problem ends up becoming when too much fat is consumed and it displaces like eating enough carbs to maximize your performance, right? And I feel like the pendulum has swung in terms of telling people or showing people how fat is helpful and beneficial, but in many ways to the detriment of carbohydrates. And carbohydrates are what actually fuel your performance on the field or the ice or right, in the gym, what have you. So it's still critically important to eat enough, eat enough overall, hit protein minimums, hit carb minimums, and make sure that whatever's left is at least 20% of your calories from fat. If you're doing that, you're going to be pretty good. So you opened up Pandora's box there and <laughs> specific types of fats. So I'd like for you to go in that rabbit hole because um, there's a lot of uh, controversy, right? Like which fats are good, which fats are bad. We have a pretty good idea, but uh, there's still people who are fighting, you know, pro vegetable fats and pro canola oil. And it blows my mind, but I'm curious to hear your, your, maybe your opinion and what you know based on fact. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, ultimately there are, like three main types of fat, right? You got saturated fat, which would be things like from butter, coconut, 
other tropical oils and to some degree in like other animal foods you know they're they're made up of a mix of things uh, then there's monounsaturated fat right which you get from like nuts olive oil canola oil things of that nature and there's polyunsaturated fats which you get from corn oil fish oil right and there's that can even be broken down they can all be broken down further but polyunsaturated in particular because there's omega-6 and omega-3 but the way we teach foods in general and fat as well is to have people think on a continuum right it's not this is good fat this is bad fat right we try to actually help people break that mental model of this is good and this is bad like things just aren't that binary we tend to teach things on that on a continuum from like eat some or eat less to eat some to eat more so things that we know are definitively healthy or we're quite confident are definitively healthy olive oil nuts seeds things that are you know, closer to whole food or are a whole food, contain healthy fats uh, like monounsaturated fat, which is pretty definitively, at the very least, neutral, most likely even beneficial, right? And they also tend to contain polyphenols, like plant compounds that don't provide calories, but seem to provide a whole host of, of potential health benefits. They often contain fiber, right, and other elements like that, so like nuts in particular or seeds. So we tend to teach things on that continuum and try to help people make progressions along that continuum. So things like corn oil or soybean oil, I mean, soybean oil alone makes up like 9% of all calories in the U.S. today. Uh, and that's something that didn't exist 70 years ago, right? So that seems a little bit like a science experiment to me. Um, you know, there's... You can't prove anything, but there isn't a whole lot of evidence that soybean oil is particularly directly beneficial. There's some evidence that suggests it might be problematic. We tend to put it on the eat less often because we don't know, and it's certainly not proven to be beneficial. Whereas something like dark chocolate or extra virgin coconut oil is in the middle, right? People have, again, we want to talk about pendulums, right? Everything used to be anti-saturated fat. Like, I don't know how old you are, Ben, but I grew up in the 80s. I mean, low fat was like the thing, right? Everyone ate low fat. Low fat snack wells, low fat Newton, low fat was everywhere. And then it swung and then it became low carb. And then it's all over the place. Right now it's, it's keto, it's paleo, um, things of that nature. So the fact is like... Low fat is not necessarily right, but neither is um, glorifying fat or glorifying saturated fats, right? Because that pendulum also applies to the type of fat. For a long time, saturated fat was really looked at as like problematic. And then particularly in our field, like we saw there's some, some new data that shows it's not as problematic. And that got interpreted to mean like, oh, shit, yeah, like saturated fat is on the menu, baby. Bacon, butter coconut like just hammer it and that's not actually what the evidence says it doesn't say oh saturated fat isn't as terrible as we thought therefore eat as much of it as you want it's okay it's not clearly the main driver but it's still not a nutrient that's particularly like excellent for your health in large amounts it just means we can eat some and that's fine and you don't have to be like hyper concerned about it but it doesn't mean that you should be you know hammering bacon and butter and coconut all day either so you know, we tend to put things on that continuum, right? So things like olive oil, nuts, seeds, avocados are all in the eat more. Things like even fish oil I put in the eat some because you only want to consume a very moderate amount of fish oil on a, on a consistent basis. Um, you know, but things like coconut, particularly 
extra virgin coconut, refined coconut, I actually probably put in the eat less continuum, right? So we have a whole, we don't have to go through every food option here, right. just to give people the, uh, the concept. We have a whole infographic that kind of outlines all these options and visualizes it for people. That's how we get our athletes and our like regular everyday individuals to think about food in general and fats in particular. So if you're, if you're uh, an athlete sitting at home right now and you know, you're coaching them, how do you make a decision between uh, leaning more toward fat versus leaning more toward carb? I'm sure I know where you're going, but I'd love to have you kind of walk through your thought process. Yeah, I think it depends on what type of activity you do and then how much of that activity you do, right? So if you are you know, a washed up ex-athlete like me who lifts, you know, three times hey, a week. Man, don't hate <laughs> don't, don't hate. Right? Hey, nothing wrong with it, man. I can still go mountain biking. I still play basketball right in my neighborhood, play men's league hockey. So I still, I'm still active. I still do things. Um, but I'm not a hard training athlete like I was when I was 16. I was practicing two hours a day and playing games and getting in some lifts. Like my overall output was dramatically higher. Um, for the most part, I mean, I sit or stand at a desk all day, right? And then I do 45 minutes of a workout in the morning. I mean, that's really the extent of it. So like my carb needs are not nearly as high as like a competitive, uh, like elite level hockey player, right? Or an endurance athlete, or even like an elite level, like CrossFitter, right? Who's going to be training much longer, maybe even multiple times per day, more times per week than I do. So it's your overall volume of work and then even the type of work you do. So if you are, so let me give like a prime example. Let's say you are a track and field athlete, right? You throw discus. You might be practicing for two hours, but it's these really short burst, like explosive movements, right? Or a golfer or a baseball player for that matter, right? It's this explosive, powerful movement and you don't do anything for a while. Or in golf, you might walk to your ball, but you're not running. It's this really, really fast, a pitcher, really, really fast motion, explosive motion, and then you don't do anything for a while. So even if they're like, quote unquote, playing for two or three or four hours, their overall output or recovery demanded from that output is dramatically lower than someone running a marathon. And then from someone, you know, even weight training for multiple hours a day. So the overall output is dramatically lower. So as you go on that spectrum from like an endurance athlete to an intermittent sport athlete, so think like soccer, football, hockey, rugby, to like a strength and power, pure strength and power athlete, discus thrower, uh, golfer, right, baseball pitcher, power lifter, your carb needs start are much higher on the endurance end and continually kind of drop as you move along that spectrum. And then even within that spectrum, you know, if you're an endurance athlete, someone who runs four miles a day versus like a triathlete who's, you know, probably training three, four, five times that, um, your carb needs fluctuate even within those spectrums based on the amount of volume that you're doing. So is that... Yeah, that's great. So speaking of someone who maybe is, is a baseball player or someone who's a powerlifter who not putting a huge amount or a golfer, not putting a huge amount of demand on, on the muscular system, really, but it's really neurologically demanding. How, how does that influence um, nutrition needs, whether it be micronutrients or macronutrients? Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, it's still it's definitely still important. Right. But oftentimes a lot of the foods that are good for your body are good for your brain. And so we still want to ensure adequate overall nutrition because we know there's there is a mental and cognitive load there and an emotional load. Um, so, and, you, and fr- frankly, your brain is the hungriest organ in your body, right? 20% of your calories go to feeding your brain of your resting metabolic rate. 
So it's definitely very demanding. Um, so you want to make sure that's getting fed appropriately too. So, you know, we've already ticked off the calories, the proteins, the carbs, the fats. I mean, then we're now we're talking a little more nitty gritty, making sure they're getting enough um, fruits and vegetables, right? Which have, again, those phytonutrients, those plant compounds that certainly interact with the brain. They interact with other bodily tissues that can lower inflammation that seem to have these properties that are far from fully understood in addition to the vitamins and minerals they also contain, right? And then we can get into things like eating enough fish or fish oil for their omega-3 fats, which are definitely, uh, your brain is made up by a significant portion of omega-3 fats. So that's very important for overall brain health, helping to decrease inflammation as well, which goes into, uh, you know, cognitive state. So you definitely want to be more cognizant of those things. They come into play, particularly for some of those really high intensity outputs, right? Which put a different strain. Like I would put it, frame it like this. There's a cost of top performance, whether that's endurance, whether that's, you know, pure power or strength output. People who are training to be the best at those particular types of activities, there is a cost to that. When you're an endurance athlete, right? It's that energy deficiency. You don't see energy deficiency in powerlifters. That's usually not uh, it's usually not a concern, right? But you do see joint wear and tear. You do see impacts on on you know certainly uh, like you said on cognition, on thinking of all the, like the CNS demand, the central nervous system demand that comes from such high intensity output on such you know over and over and over, over again. So no matter what, no matter what population you're working with, if they're at a high level, there are going to be differing demands, but very, very high-level demands and trade-offs being made. So you need to help make sure that you are accounting for those. So at the, the examples you're talking about, I would be focused on, again, hitting those bedrock things, but then again, being really cognizant of fruit and vegetable intake, the types of fats you're eating, which influence like cellular communication, right? Too much saturated fat makes your cells more rigid and stiff, and they don't actually communicate as well. Too many polyunsaturated fats, actually makes them too fluid, right? And they don't actually hold their structure as well. So you need that balance. That's where that pendulum or that consideration for, and people went crazy for saturated fat. That's not necessarily a good thing, right? You're, you're changing your cellular structure by eating that way. Whereas if you have a nice mix of some saturated fats, hey, you got some dark chocolate, we have some animal proteins, right? We have a little bit of maybe like some butter or some extra virgin coconut oil, but we're also getting some nuts and some seeds and some olive oil, maybe some fish or some fish oil. Now your cells are in that nice mix and they're communicating well, they're structuring well, it'll actually decrease inflammation. So that'll help your brain health since your brain's made up of so much fat. Uh, and it'll help your immune system and recovery. So those are kind of all the things we're, we're thinking about when it comes to that. So right when we started the chat, you mentioned um, nutrient timing starts to matter for people at a high level, for people looking for that high level performance. Um, I'd love to dive into that because a lot of people... Um, you know, and I'll put this in quotations, the quote unquote Instagram nutritionists t- tend to poo poo um, the value of timing. And, you know, having been a high level athlete myself, I can say with 100% certainty that it matters at a very, very high level, whether or not it matters. And, and you know, Grandma Sue sitting in front of the TV, I'm guessing that's a very different thing. Mm-hmm. I'd love to have you chat about uh, your beliefs or what you've experienced around uh, nutrient timing, ultimately how to do it and, and what type of benefit did you uh, as an athlete or in your uh, studies experience? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's actually a great 
you already, you already gave a great example um, talking about it. Because again, going back to how we teach food on a continuum, we teach nutrient timing. It's not a binary, it's useless, or it's like, you know, the most amazing thing since sliced bread. It's It falls on a continuum of needs. For Grandma Sue sitting on a couch, right? For the most part, nutrient timing doesn't, doesn't matter a whole lot. Um, if you're an athlete competing in a round robin where you have multiple events in the same day, like, yeah, nutrient timing matters. You can't just, you know, uh, put all your feeding at the end of the day after you've played four games. That's not going to help you perform at your best throughout the tournament. So nutrient timing, again, functions or falls on that continuum. And so at high levels of athletics is when it's most important. Um, if you're looking to maximize like your body composition, how much fat you can lose or how much muscle you can gain. I'd say it's less important than in athletics when that's the difference between winning and losing, but it falls a little more in the middle. It's, it's more important than for grandma Sue. Right. And then if you have, you know, uh, four grandmas or for my mom, for example, who power walks and lifts weights twice a week, it's, it's not a huge, her overall intake trumps it by, I mean, by night and day. So for those high level people, Right. What we're really looking for, what we're talking about when we talk about nutrient timing, we're mainly talking about three things, four things, protein, carbohydrates, fluids, and electrolytes. And when it comes to endurance athletes, particularly the carbs, the fluid, and the electrolytes, um, you know, to help maintain performance when you're over an hour, over an hour and a half in particular, right? So getting in 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrates an hour, sometimes even higher for ultra endurance athletes, or you're crossing that two hour mark up to even 90 grams per hour. Um, but then you got to be more careful when you get that high, you got to have certain ratios. Otherwise you get some pretty serious GI distress. I'm sure as many runners have experienced, um, and then even fluid intake and electrolyte intake, they, they do need to be tailored to the individual. People sweat differently. You're in different conditions, right? If I'm doing a, a marathon here in May, in Maine in October, Versus in Arizona, you know, and I don't know if that probably doesn't happen in July, but as just an example, or if you're running that uh, ultra marathon in was a Death Valley, that's a very, very different environment, very, very different sweat rates than if you're here in, in Maine in the fall, right? So you have to keep in mind not just the athlete and the generalized needs, but the environment that they're competing in, right, as well. So go ahead. Yeah, talk to me about um, timing with respect to circadian rhythm. So even Grandma Sue. It's going to have, I believe, significant impact on her circadian biology based on nutrient timing. Yet no one seems to take that into consideration. How do you feel about that? Uh, like in what way? Like how are you? Well, how are you thinking? Well, kind of three major impacts on circadian biology are going to be light, te body temperature, and food. Right. So if, you know, if someone, if Grandma Sue tends to do intermittent fasting, which is something that's huge right now. Again, not against it, not not for it. Just ultimately looking for kind of some some perspective on, you know, if she waits to the end of the day to have her meal, and that ends up shifting her circadian biology to where now she sleeps poorly, or where her her organs are now dysregulated from the super superchiasmatic nucleus. How's that going to impact body composition? How's that going to impact sleep? Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, I mean, some of the research I've seen there, you know, like some of the most. Um, some of the research with the biggest impacts are in mice when they like wake them up in the middle of the night and have them feed. And that really throws a wrench in things. So yeah, if you're, if you're raiding the fridge at three o'clock in the morning, like that could probably lead to significant disruptions. It's telling your brain it's time to eat. We should be awake. There's a whole lot of stuff going on there, you know? And when you see, 
people eating dinner at 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. Um, probably not an ideal state, right? Because again, like you said, food is one mechanism that tells your brain like what time it is, right? Which helps to regulate not just your circadian clock in your brain, but you have circadian clocks in in virtually all your cells, right? And, and many, many cells throughout your body. And if those become dysregulated from each other, that's also problematic. So in general, like the one of the ways we, we find that helps people sleep their best is one knowing what their normal chronobiology is are they they tend to be someone who's a night owl or are they a morning person and you can test this by like not having it like on vacation not having an alarm right what do you tend to do stay up people tend to stay up a little later on vacation anyway because there's less of a rigid schedule but still you'll find people who are up till three or four in the morning and others who man but it's still by 10 p.m right they're just toast so knowing that helps to inform you're eating a little bit, right? This is when my body's most awake. This is when I'm I'm not. But no matter what, if you're eating a lot, like let's say you're trying carb backloading or, or OMAD, right? One meal a day and you're you know fasting 20 hours, eating a huge meal at night. If it's disrupting your sleep and making you feel like crap, uh, you know, affecting your emotional state, like I don't care what the proposed physiological benefit is, you're not getting it, right? The that's where we really preach like using outcome-based decision making. So even if I tell you, man, eating four meals a day is the best approach, you have this regular meal time, it regulates your circadian biology and your circadian rhythm, it's going to help you sleep better. If you do it and you feel crappy on it and your sleep worsens, it doesn't matter what quote unquote should be working. It matters what is working. So that's one thing I, I see people struggle with a lot is they read this concept, this philosophy or this approach and like, oh, that sounds cool. I'm going to try that. My friend did it and had great success and they're trying it and it's making them feel like crap, but they keep doing it because it should be working. Like you got to look at the evidence in front of you and what is happening. So, you know, in terms of like nutrient timing, affecting sleep and affecting your, you know, chronobiology, which, you know, affecting your sleep is certainly going to impact your body composition for a whole host of reasons. I would look at how you respond, like test something for all. We treat a lot of things as experiments, right? There's a lot of stuff we, there's some stuff we know definitively, and there's a whole lot of things that we're pretty sure happen a certain way, or then there's a whole even bigger host of things that we're, we're like, okay, we extrapolate from rats, or we know this happens, and we know that that happens, so A plus B probably equals C, right? So we're kind of making some physiological leaps, which are, grounded in what we think should happen, but ultimately you have to look at the person in front of you, or if it's yourself, like evaluate your own data. Hey, I'm going to try this for a week. And every day I'm going to write down, you know, how'd my, how'd I, how much did I sleep? How did I feel when I woke up? Did I have a lot of energy? You know, did I feel well rested? Was I super full when I went to bed? Anything to that nature. And then analyze it over a period of time. Treat it as an experiment and be like, man, this is working awesome for me. I'm sleeping better. I'm sleeping more. Like my workouts have felt great. Or conversely, things are going downhill or oftentimes you see it it's in the middle eh, I didn't really notice a big difference other than it being a pain in the ass for me to have to get up for breakfast or it's really difficult for me to eat so much at nighttime by fasting so long during the day so treat things as an experiment and gather data about yourself on what's actually happening for you so how do you feel kind of along those lines how do you feel about people eating you know a lot of aspiring bodybuilders or people wanting to build muscle or maybe attached to having something right before bed like I want to make sure that I'm anabolic while I sleep and all these, you know, old paradigms. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how that may be uh, affecting people. 
It's funny. I've gone in, in over the, over the years, like different directions on that. Right. When I was younger, um, and like, let's say in college and like, that was my goal was just to get as jacked as, as possible, as muscular as possible. Right. Like, man, I had to have some, some protein before bed. It was either casein or I remember there be, once being this like designer whey protein that was like a time released whey protein, which is essentially what it was just casein, right? It was, it was trying to function as a casein, but it was whey. So that made it better. Um, right. So it, you know, did stuff like that. Then I, got older, got more cynical and was like, yeah, none of that stuff's all useless. All that matters is getting your total for the day, which is true for, you know, the general population. But if you're looking to push the boundaries of how much muscle you can gain, there's actually been an interesting, small um, set of, of research lately looking at like having a pre-bed like casein feeding and it leading to improved muscle protein synthesis and decreased protein breakdown. But it doesn't actually tell us that you're gaining more muscle, right? So it's looking at these like soft markers of synthesis and breakdown that we think should lead to the long-term outcomes we're actually looking for, which is gaining muscle mass, okay. right? And then that, a lot of research is like that. You look at a lot of the research on heart health. What do they look at? They look for proxies. Oh, does your cholesterol go up? Does your cholesterol go down? But they don't, it's so much more expensive and it takes a lot longer time to look at hard endpoints, which is the actual rates of heart, of heart disease, right? Same thing for muscle. It takes a long time to build an appreciable amount of muscle. So a lot of research is short-term because it's cheaper, it's easier to do, and we're looking at things that we think will lead to the outcome people want. In that regard, there's been a, a couple of recent papers in the past few years uh, looking at you know nighttime protein feeding and it increasing muscle protein synthesis and decreasing protein breakdown, which in theory should lead to more muscle gain. Um, but certainly no definitive evidence. It's definitely a practice a lot of people have used. I would not wake yourself up in the middle of the night, right? We know how valuable sleep is. And if having that casein before bed significantly impacts your sleep, the trade-off likely isn't worth it. But if you have a small casein shake or a little cottage cheese before bed, let's say an hour before bed, and there's no dis de definitive evidence that it's disrupting your sleep or harming your performance, my thought is it might help. It might be a small little boost and it likely isn't hurting, but I wouldn't expect it to. It's not going to be like, you know, catapulting your results forward. It's just one of those little incremental pieces that might give you a small boost in addition to, you know, having bookending your workouts with protein or taking a, taking creatine. I mean, creatine is definitively much more proven than having casein at night. All right. So you got to look at it as what are my big rocks? Those are some of the ones I outlined in the beginning. What are like the pebbles? That would be like things like uh, protein powder to help you get enough protein or creatine, right? And then what, what's the sand? The sand would be something like that, right? Taking a pre-workout supplement or having some casein before bed. Yeah, it might help, um, but it's not, it's not guaranteed like getting enough sleep and eating enough calories and getting enough right. protein is. So you brought up uh, MPS and muscle protein breakdown, and I'm curious what you know, and this may not be an expertise, but I'm curious what you know. Um, first of all, the variance is, this is a very maybe over generally question, but uh, person to person, like how much of a swing is there person to person in your ability to synthesize protein or maybe the, the amount of protein you actually need uh, to stimulate MPS? And um, maybe some things we can do to improve MPS versus things that actually we know blunt NPS. I'm very curious kind of in that whole uh, realm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple couple pieces to unpack there. Um, so interestingly, I'd actually start with 
when you talk about like the ability to boost MPS, I'd, I'd even extend that further and talk about like the ability to gain muscle, right? It's a really interesting, there was this really interesting paper that like, I think it was Brett Contreras and James Krieger outlined, or might've been Brad Schoenfeld, I can't remember off the top of my head, talked about like five years ago that showed this like really interesting, when you look at the average, right? These people trained three times a week for 12 weeks and on average they gained like three and a half pounds of muscle or something like that. I don't remember the exact numbers. When you look at the actual like results of people's uh, display of people's results, right? There were like two dudes who gained like 10 pounds and 12 pounds of muscle, like this extraordinary response. And there was like three or no, I think it might have even been six people who lost muscle training three times per week. And it wasn't because they were training dramatically more before and now decreased their volume, right? They pulled from all newbies. And there was this group of people who actually lost muscle training three times per week and they hadn't trained before on average the vast majority of people gained some muscle and there were some outliers who gained a dramatic amount and the reason I'm, I'm highlighting this is we often only see like study averages that are reported oh man when people gain workout for 12 weeks they should gain three pounds of muscle right. this, this person's losing muscle they must be doing something wrong right there's something wrong with their actions or their behaviors and they're failing Part of it is people just respond differently. I mean, if everyone is going to get jacked from lifting weights, like you'd have a lot more bodybuilders walking around. Um, now, there's still a response that the vast majority of people will get. But then you get those outliers who also gain a dramatic amount. So there's definitely, I'm speaking to that because it, it's related to some people get a much greater muscle protein synthetic response some people will have you know more uh, uh like hormone receptors on their muscle you can get into a whole host of things as to why that is but in terms of like eating enough protein to maximize muscle protein synthesis on the whole that seems to be about 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram which fits right in the really classic bodybuilding ideal of one gram per pound on a per meal basis um you know you're probably looking at a minimum of 20 to 40 grams of protein per meal. My suspicion is like some of that research, oh, there was some, was it probably three, four years ago, 20 grams is all you need. That maximizes your protein synthetic response. And then another study came out later where they like worked out more, they did a total body lift and worked out harder. And oh, it required 40 grams of protein. And my suspicion is um, this also depends on the size of the individual, right? You have a 240 pound bodybuilder who's, 8% body fat, like, you know, doing a hard workout can be a very different requirement than 160 pound individual in a, you know, a grad student doing the study and what their protein requirement is. My, my guess is it would be based on your actual amount of lean mass, how hard your workout is, what muscle tissue you use, what muscle, muscle groups you use. But on the whole, I would, I, I like, um, I think it's Alan Aragon and Brad Schoenfeld did it on like a grams per kilogram basis, like 0.4 to 0.55 grams per kilogram of body weight per meal of protein. So then when you can look at, oh, I'm, you know, I'm 200 pounds, right? Divided by 2.2, I'm 91 kilos. I got to get basically 0.5 grams per kilo. It's 45 grams of protein. That's, you know, a six ounce, eight, eight ounce piece of chicken breast plus you know, whatever else I'm having in there. So it's not as, I think sometimes protein gets overvalued. People are think, oh, I got to get enough protein in, and they're consuming 400 grams a day, right? There isn't evidence that eating more protein above and beyond that 1.6 to 2.2 grams threshold increases muscle protein even, like growth even further. There is some evidence that it can prevent you from gaining body fat while overeating, 
but you don't want to eat so much protein that it's displacing the carbs you need to fuel your workouts or the fats you need to maintain your immune health, right? So you want to eat enough protein to maximize your synthesis per meal and overall and to blunt the breakdown, um, but not so much that it's displacing the other nutrients you need to train your hardest, recover your best, right? And things like that. Makes a lot of sense. So how much do you consider inflammation when building a diet or when approaching somebody's whether it be body transformation or performance optimization? Um, I mean, I think I'm going to give you the answer you hate. It depends. So for, for if I'm working with a general population individual uh, and they're coming to me with a goal of losing a significant amount of weight, I'm going to assume they've got some chronic low-level inflammation going on. However, I'm not going to do like crazy things to treat it. Because I, another part of me knows that achieving those fundamental bedrock things, and if we can help them eat better foods, be closer to meeting their actual nutrient requirements instead of the overeating they've been doing, right? getting plenty of protein, plenty of fruits and vegetables, like we're going to dramatically decrease inflammation by one, no longer overeating. Two, choosing better foods. We're getting a lot of anti-inflammatory compounds from fruits and vegetables, from healthy fats, right? Three, we're going to talk about sleep and stress, other things that contribute significantly to inflammation. But we're not talking, I'm not necessarily telling them, hey, you got to decrease your inflammation, right? So it often ends up being, we're talking about all these big rock pieces that dramatically help them reach their goal and decrease their inflammation. And by losing body fat alone is going to dramatically decrease inflammation. And the biggest driver of inflammation is the visceral body fat, right? That body fat in your behind your abdominal wall, so under your ab muscles, around your organs. So if we're decreasing that, inflammation is going to be coming down. Now, if I have a high-level athlete who's already eating well, but is just training so hard that they're having a, an inflammatory response that is above and beyond um, what their, even their good nutrition is going to help them recover from, that's another situation altogether, right? So we'll look at things like, hey, maybe we need to take some curcumin, and we need to really increase your fish oil dose above and beyond like uh, a generic general health perspective dose, right? Like instead of one to two grams of EPA and DHA a day, now we're probably talking two to three, maybe even two to four, right? Increasing the fish oil, taking direct anti-inflammatory things like curcumin, um, considering supplementing with other anti-inflammatories or really making sure, hey, we're getting in some green tea. We're getting in some dark berries every day. We're more concerned about the particular foods than I would be for my mom. Hey, if you like apples, eat apples, right? But for this individual, it's like, hey, we got to make sure we're getting in some blueberries or some pineapple, things that are helped to show, uh, to show things that are shown to help with those particular scenarios, tart cherry juice, right? since we need to get more specific and targeted with that population. So again, it, it falls on that continuum. For general pop, we're just taking, we're gonna need to get those big rocks and the smaller pebbles in place, and that's gonna dramatically lower their inflammatory status. How much do you think what we eat in the first meal of the day influences the way our body uses nutrients for the rest of the day? Um, to a minor degree. I mean, I think what you're doing as an overall pattern day after day matters. Did what you eat specifically for breakfast that one day like dramatically alter how your body responds later? I tend to doubt that. I mean, there's certainly going to be some differences, right? If I have, you know, like a, a nice egg omelet with a bunch of veggies, some whole grain toast, and a piece of fruit, versus I have a box of donuts, you know, I'm going to respond differently. There's no question. 
And if I'm having those donuts every single day versus, you know, I'm having the eggs, or I'm having Greek yogurt, I'm having other quality foods every day, that's going to matter more than having the donuts one day. So I'm not of the opinion that, you know, you, you like that each particular meal matters this dramatic amount because I think that just ends up making people neurotic about their food, right? And we want to consider the whole pattern over the course of time as opposed to, oh man, if I have, if I have pancakes with syrup with my kids for breakfast, like, man, I'm going to be screwed. It's going to, I'm not going to you know, tolerate my other carbs later in the day. Well, I think that ends up making most people think, have, have dysregulated thoughts about food when food should also be an expression of joy and an experience in your life. Now I wouldn't eat pancakes with syrup every single morning, but if that's like your Saturday morning thing, like it's a, to me, it's probably irrelevant for 97% of the population if it makes a very minor difference to how you tolerate carbs later in the day. Because even, even then, I still tend to doubt it's going to make much difference because it's the overall pattern that matters over time. Do you guys look at uh, HRV with respect to how it influences uh, how we should eat? Um, not necessarily to how we should eat a whole lot. I mean, HRV is interesting in that it's, it's a... Uh, part of a measure of recovery. I think some people have taken it too far and look at it as like the be all end all, um, as like this one metric that tells you all things. And it's, it's just not that, um, you know, even, even within the research, like having really high levels or really low levels isn't always indicative of exactly how you've recovered. And so it can be when it's part of a much more holistic um, analysis of how someone's recovering. So if their HRV is low and they just feel crummy, like their mental state's not great or their emotional state's not great, or if you ask them how they slept or how much sleep they got. So when it's part of a more comprehensive analysis, uh, we'll take that into account. Like, hey, it doesn't seem like you're recovering well. We should do X, Y, and Z, maybe up your carbs or, you know, it depends on what's going on. So what's X, Y, Z? Because that was, that was the follow-up question, right? So someone wakes up, and I'm, I'm, I'm overburdened, I'm, I'm stressed, my HRV is low, that's my metric. What am I, what's my course of action? Because, I mean, my context in this, Brian, is just like every figure athlete, every bikini athlete, many bodybuilders are following, it's the blind leading the blind, right? The, the coaches putting them on two hours of cardio a day, no carbs, and going, you feel like shit, no problem, do extra cardio. And then they wake up and, and their, their HRV is in the toilet, they feel like crap, and the coach is like, oh, just, you're not losing fat anymore do more cardio, right? Like, okay. So bringing this to the, to the light here, like how should these people actually be approaching it when they realize their, their nutrition is in the tank? Cause you know, these people will go and have a cheat day and go, Oh, look, I got leaner for my cheat day. And they think it's some miraculous thing. And you're like, no idiot. It's just cause your body needed calories. Right. So you got some yeah. carbs in, you got some yeah. calories in your body's like celebrating, right? Oh, you got some actual glycogen in our liver, which tells your brain that you're well fed and right. You're insulin got boosted up and you're, that's also a signal to your brain that you're well fed. And when you're constantly depleted and then trying to add more and more activity on top of that, um, that's actually in some ways analogous to the relative deficiency and energy deficiency in sport we were talking right. about. I mean, it's, it's different in that like the athlete output is, is tends to be higher. Um, so they might be outputting 5,000 calories a day and only eating 3,000, but it's a similar uh, concept that the, the bodybuilder might be only putting out only eating 1500 and putting out 2500 there's still that huge gap and so it's, oftentimes that gap then their output diminishes because then their knee output drops right they do the cardio the walk and they get home and they just sit 
I got nothing, right? And we know like neat output can vary dramatically. You can expend thousands of calories a day through pacing and fidgeting and moving. And that matters, right? You're, you're, I think the calories in calories out equation often gets confused with eat less and, and move more. And they're not the same thing, right? Eating is a part of that, but how many of those calories you absorb matters, right? So the types of food matter and the output part is dramatic, you know, can vary significantly. Obviously you have your resting metabolic rate component in your physical activity, but you also have your neat output. And so if you're under eating and you're significantly over time and you keep trying to raise physical activity, your body's like, man, something's not right. We have this huge deficit. How are we going to, it doesn't know you're trying to get shredded for a, you know, bodybuilding competition. It views it as a threat to your life. So it's doing what it does best, and that's adapt, right? Your body is in a, com a complex adaptive machine in some ways. And so it'll decrease your, your neat output, and so then you're just feeling sluggish and lethargic, and that's actually an adaptive response to get you to stop moving so that you can stop having this huge deficiency, right? So when you have that huge deficiency, that's telling me that, they're having, that their cal caloric deficit is too great, or they've been doing it for too long. They, they were too fat to start with when they started their cut for their show, or they've been too aggressive in their cut and that their deficit is too big and either from not eating enough or from doing too much cardio, even, even walking and still expending energy. And then they go into a cheat day where they have 5,000 calories and they feel incredible. Well, it's because they've actually given fuel to their body, to their brain, to their liver, right? To so many other functions to actually feel good and perform well. So oftentimes in that regard, if someone's HRV is poor, consistently or somewhat regularly in addition to sleeping down by right, other markers also reflecting it like that's depending on why that is depending on the type of training that they're doing but calories and carbs are, are going to be two of your biggest levers to pull there making sure they're getting enough sleep maybe even decreasing physical activity increasing food particularly from calories and carbs at least for a few days seeing how they respond obviously you can't keep increasing it forever if you're going to step on stage but you're definitely the answer isn't just to paleo harder right the answer isn't to just do more it's let's let's take stock of why we're feeling like crap and then what levers can we play with to help adjust that it's either through movement most likely through nutrition or through sleep awesome man how do you eat yourself how do i eat myself so You're i'm like a, an entrepreneur who's busy uh i eat four times a day yeah right so like i'm, I'm an early riser i'm up by like 5 15 most mornings um sip my coffee have some dark chocolate have some protein like a banana um i get in my workout early in the morning and then i'm like showering bringing the kids at least now bringing the kids back to school um and then i'm having like my post-workout meal so usually like some like greek yogurt with some fruits and some whole grain or some sprouted grain toast and then i'm you know i eat like four times a day and then i have uh, my lunch I eat like four hours later usually like salmon or chicken some veggies sweet potato nuts that kind of thing that's probably the most consistent and then dinner rotates very frequently depending on i do most of the cooking but it's usually pretty simple i mean i, I aim for like protein a starch and a veggie and then we're adding some healthy fats to it right so we might have i might grill up some lean burgers on like a whole grain bun throw some nice cheese on there right with some veggies side salad or some roasted vegetables depending on the time of year i might roast some meat you know, I like to do a lot of roasted stuff in the winter living in Maine. It's cold, right? So we'll do a lot of roasted vegetables in the wintertime. In the summertime, a lot of salads with like some protein on top. And I'll rotate our proteins. We'll do chicken. We'll do steak. We'll do tofu. Um, you 
you know, so always kind of keeping it consistent, but also not just novel enough where you're not getting like bored and tired of it. But I eat a pretty regular, pretty regular four meals a day, you know, pre-workout, post-workout breakfast, uh, pretty, pretty much the same every day. I just like it. It's good. Yeah. My lunch varies a little bit, um, but they're pretty, it's like the same concept where I'm looking for like a palm or two of protein, like two cupped handfuls of carbohydrates, two fists of vegetables, and a thumb or two of fats. So that's like my framework. And then how I flesh that out depends on the day. Sometimes it's a wrap. Sometimes it's a stir fry. Sometimes it's an omelet. Uh, depends on what I've got going on and what I'm feeling. I usually get into rhythms. I'll do the omelet for a week straight and then I'll do something else. Do you think there's value in eating uh, seasonally? Sounds like you're kind of doing that a little bit intuitively. Um, I think there's value environmentally doing it that way. In terms of your actual physical health, I think that's up for debate. Um, I certainly don't think it's going to be harmful. Do I think it's like this going to make make this massive difference in your in your overall well being and nutrition? No, I think those fundamental rock big pieces are are still like what what really move the needle. Um, but at the same time, like eating seasonally is most likely going to be better for the environment if you're eating what's near you. It's not traveling as far. That's a whole nother discussion. And then, you know, I mean, maybe from a physiological perspective, I mean, it's how, certainly how humans ate historically, or you had to eat with the seasons because you could only eat what was near you. So you could make an um, evolutionary argument for it. I don't know if there's any significant evidence for it. We do it because, just, I mean, I'm certainly not going to be firing up my oven in the middle of, of summertime, right? It's like, it's got the AC on, I'll be outside grilling. I mean, in Maine, we have four distinct seasons. So you it's more clear cut. Or if I lived in Florida year round, might be, you know, I might eat differently. I certainly would. It's different foods available at different times. Um, and in the wintertime here, it's like, oh, a nice warm roasted vegetables sound good versus like a cold salad, which is refreshing and nice in the summer. So it's, yeah, it just kind of happens that way, but it's not like, I'm not doing it that way with a purpose of this is better for me. It's, this is what I enjoy eating at this time of year. Awesome, Brad. I really enjoyed the conversation, man. Where should people find more from you? Social media or do we send them directly to PN? I would say, if you know anything about me, uh, I don't use social media. So uh, PN, precisionnutrition.com is definitely where to check out. Check me out. I mean, I write a lot for the blog, help create all of our content. Um, you know, back when we were allowed to travel, would travel and speak on behalf of PN. So I'm out there. Um, I'm, I'm working a lot of our like public facing stuff. So you'll see, if you read an article from PN, there's a one in three chance that has my name on it. Very cool, man. Thank you so much. That was an incredible conversation. I'm sure our audience is going to get a tremendous amount of value from it. Yeah, I hope so, man. I'm so glad you had me. All right, ladies and gents, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I know that the world is busy and I know the world is stressful and I'm doing my best to bring on the best guests to start demystifying this process. And what you'll notice is more and more and more as we explore the complexities that potentially exist within the human body, it starts to boil down to a small number of things, doesn't it? So I've created the six pillars of an optimized body and life. And this is really how I frame the podcast. It's like everything we do fits into one of these six pillars. So I, I highly suggest you guys understand them. If you haven't already listened to the podcast they did on the six pillars, do that. Start to understand there's really only six things that you can impact in your life. And obviously, each of those chunks down into many, many layers. Today's podcast with Brian St. Pierre was an incredible insight to one of those pillars. 
and that's nutrition. But remember, nutrition is not the only pillar. There's five other pillars, and each of them ha should, in your mind, have an equal weighting because one is not necessarily more important than the other. They all have a significant potential to have impact on our physiology and our biology and ultimately determine whether or not we're thriving as humans. Are we showing up with maximum energy? Are we showing up with maximum clarity and uh, focus and peace of mind and strength and resilience and ultimately the, the all of the things that go into thriving as a human being? I hope you love this conversation. If you did, I would appreciate your, your subscribing on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, it's so incredible to be able to share this wisdom, to be able to travel the world and just connect with the brightest people to bring um, more and more clarity and shed more and more light on this stuff. The podcast today is sponsored by realmushrooms.com, the greatest mushrooms on the planet, what I use every day and I suggest you guys use as well. realmushrooms.com slash Ben, gives you 30% off your first order and uh, the highest quality organic mushrooms nowhere else to go for mushrooms guys thank you so much for being here uh, i really appreciate you and i look forward to seeing you again on the next podcast because i got an amazing one coming at you don't miss it thank you so much for tuning into muscle intelligence if you enjoyed today's episode please be sure to share it with at least one person you know make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode this podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.